Good morning. It's a rough sell getting all the kiddos to leave those toys behind and come sit through worship service, wasn't it? Our house looks kind of like someone took a toy store and shook it out in the middle of the floor and then let a raccoon loose in the trash to sp- spread a thin layer of stuff all on top of it. It's been a, been a fun morning, and you know, I can't think of a place I would rather be than right here this morning on this special day. Our family goes to early service normally at, eight, at 8.15, and, and so we... Uh, uh, Luke got up here and, and started off with the first song, and Brooklyn looked over to Brianna and said, It is loud. <laughs> so it, it's really special to get to be together on this really special day, and I am, I am so thankful for that. How many of you remember Christmas 23 years ago? Some of you sure can't raise your hands, but a lot of you can. Um, it was 1999. I was a mere 14 years old. And if y'all will recall, there was some uncertainty looming on the horizon. Y'all remember 1999 and what we were all worried about? Y2K. Yeah. I even found a, a picture that had some super old-looking computer files on it. A lot of our young people have no idea what I'm talking about. And, and looking back on it makes me feel a little bit silly. Um, Perhaps I remember it differently than some of you, because I was only 14 at the time and probably susceptible to not super clear thinking, but I remember being pretty uneasy about what was going to happen. So computers had become mainstream, they had really been adopted in the last uh, couple of decades, and, and it turned out that everyone started to realize that the way that dates were stored in computer databases was by the last two digits of the year. So the year 2000 was going to be indiscernible from the year 1900 or the year 1800. And as people started to realize this, there was a lot of concern about what was going to happen to all of these computer systems that we had begun to rely on as that clock rolled over from 99 to 00. People became worried about it. In fact, if I recall, there was some that predicted a global shutdown. People were stocking up on food and all sorts of other supplies. And I don't remember ever being afraid of what was going to happen at Y2K, but I do remember when the ball dropped, pausing just a little bit and kind of looking both ways to see what was going to happen. And I remember waking up the next morning and wondering, like, is there any truth to all of this hype that's been swirling around us? Like, what's the world going to look like when I wake up this next day? And it turns out it was totally normal. It was fine. There was a lot of hype, uh, much ado about nothing. Um, The time came, the time went, and life went on. And here we are, all of these years later. There was no lockdown of the banks. There was no global collapse. Really, there was nothing. So as I've been preparing for this sermon series, a little bit of this feeling pops up inside of me. In fact, as, as everyone was walking in, Nathan Dominguez walked by and said, No pressure, Blake. Well, some of that's because there's a lot of people here, but some of it's because this is part five of a five-week series about the greatest story ever told, and here we are at the culminating event of all that we've looked at from the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, and we've seen so many things, and it's been building up to this moment, and then I sit down to study to get ready for this lesson, and I get a little bit of a similar feeling, like I look over my shoulder and think, really, Luke? Is this it? Is this what you're going to leave us with? In fact, let's read it together. We're in the second chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 2, and we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 7. 
The text tells us this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. That's what Luke gave us. That's the most uneventful, lackluster, disappointing text after all that we have been building up to. It seems emotionless when I read it. It's filled with facts. If we have any fans of The Office, this is how Dwight Schrute would tell the story of Jesus Christ. Like, well, they had a census, and they had to go to a town, and then she gave birth to a son and put him in a manger because there wasn't space in the end. And, and, then, and then the story seems to pause right there. It's almost comical. Why did, why did Luke tell the story of Jesus this way? I mean, it certainly roots the event in history. There's a lot of value that we get from the things that we see swirling around this. And that was an important part of what Luke was trying to do for Theophilus. He was trying to give him some undeniable facts surrounding the birth of Christ so he could be sure that this really happened. I think it does that for us as well. Um, There's some other secondary things that we see in the text. I mean, we learn by looking at this how God uses governments and and those who aren't even believers in him to, to orchestrate these world events in a way that work for his good. So there's certainly something to be learned there from the secondary elements in the story. But I don't think any of these are the reason that he tells the story the way that he does. I think this was simply how it happened. It was uneventful. It was humble. The birth of Jesus came without a bunch of pomp and circumstance. To our mothers in the room, let me ask you how you would feel about this. I remember suggesting when Braxton was first born, Brianna may throw her shoe at me from the back of the auditorium, that all of the fancy things that we had bought for him were unnecessary. He would be totally fine to sleep in a dresser drawer. You want to guess how that turned out? He did not sleep in a dresser drawer. Imagine if you had been told the child that you were carrying was going to be the eternal kingdom ruler. And then imagine that you find yourself in the situation that Mary found herself in. I think you would be a little frustrated. I think you would be a little confused. This God for whom which nothing is impossible, as the angel Gabriel told us early on, the God who can make a barren woman pregnant, the God who could cause a virgin to become pregnant, couldn't pick a better time and a better place for his son to be born. The greatest story ever told seems odd at every turn. And yet when God's plan is revealed, you see the beauty God wants you to be certain that you see a few things. We've studied how God is faithful. We've studied how he is the source of kingdom success and not worldly power or might. And we've looked a lot at how God's people are the humble. And today we see that he shows up as one of his own, as the humble. Consider the pattern. We have seen an old couple viewed with reproach by the world around them, Zechariah and Elizabeth, 
approached by Gabriel and delivered some wonderful news about John, who she was carrying. Then the next week, we looked at a young female. She was a nobody from a nowhere town. Her name was Mary. And yet Gabriel appears to her and says she's going to be the one that's going to carry God's Son into the world. In our third lesson, we saw this joyous intersection of these two ladies' lives. And we see them celebrate and and proclaim all that God is doing in Mary's song. But one of the things she talks about the most is how his promises are for his people. The humble and the downtrodden and the oppressed. In fact, so far, if we really stepped back and looked honestly at what we have seen from the text, I think that we get a picture a little bit like this. God is the master and the king, and he has a plan, and he needs nothing. But the good news in the story is that the people to the right of the screen, the people off to the side, are the humble and the poor and the outcast. And so that means that there is a chance for us. In other words, thus far in the story, it appears that we are serving a benevolent and loving dictator. And that's good news. Because it could have been a different way. It could have been, it could have been that he treated us as, as his peons and presses us into soul-crushing service to him. Things could have looked very different. So the story up until this point is still good. But today we see something happen that changes it big time. Something that I think an Israelite probably couldn't hardly put into words. Everything in the life of an Israelite up to this point had had worked to maintain separation between them and God. The, The temple had layers that couldn't be accessed by normal people. When angels showed up, we see that fear was sparked and people were afraid. God had visited, okay, but but not in the way that we see thus far. How many of you seen the TV show Undercover Boss? I've only seen a few episodes. Started in 2010 and it shows what happens when executive leaders from big companies go undercover and they experience life in the ditches with their workers. So they put on a disguise and they create an alias and they have a backstory and they enter the workforce usually at an entry level job. And they're often really impacted strongly by what happens in these situations. They see firsthand the way that the employees are getting things done with the limited resources. Why do we think stuff like this is cool? Because often the boss is so far removed from us that they've lost the ability to empathize. The experience of the rich and powerful versus those with little resources, um, that's, that's a big gap that's hard to span. The bulk of the work is done by these underlings in these situations, and so it makes us feel good for the boss to step in and be able to empathize with what they are experiencing. A few weeks ago, I mentioned how we love a good rags-to-riches story, but we also love the opposite. We love when the mighty are able to, to, to be brought down and, and empathize with those of us who are normal. Church, we just read about the moment when God entered the world and shares a humble experience with his people, the humble. God is not simply a benevolent dictator. He was God, but despite being God, he entered into the human experience and the fullness of flesh. And he walked in your shoes. 
When Zachariah said God had visited, I think he probably had this picture of him visiting in the way that the Pope or the President does, with a big motorcade, and he drove by, but he's isolated, and he's protected from the people, and he's waving and spreading joy, and that's something that we love, but, but this is not how God chose to come into the world. He chose to come into the world and live and work among his people, the humble. He sweated and he cried and he struggled and he saw beauty and he saw ugliness and he felt hunger and he felt pain and he felt fullness and he felt relief. God left his throne and stepped into our shoes. And today's story makes it painfully obvious. Hebrews 4.15 encapsulates this well. Hebrews 4.15 reads, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. In other words, God has been there and done that and got the t-shirt. He understands. He can empathize. He can connect with the things that you are going with. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 paints a, a really clear picture of just how far God stooped for this. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This text lays out clearly the reality of the situation. Jesus was in the form of God, but he gave it up. He became a man, not just a man, he became a servant. Not just a servant, he became a humble servant that was so obedient that he was willing to follow his master all the way to the point of death. And not just death. Not just any death. He was killed in the worst, most grotesque, most inhumane, most unfair way possible because Jesus gave his life on the cross for our sins. He gave up everything that was rightfully his when he showed up in the flesh. He gave up his power and his prestige and his comfort and his respect. So while our account of his birth may be a little bit lackluster, it's fitting it sticks with the motif and the pattern of God's acting. It rightfully sets the scene for all that will come next. As we gather around, Christmas is often backwards and upside down. You know, it seems that as I look at the story of Jesus and I look at the story of, of, of the Christian life, often things happen the opposite of how the world says that they should or how we think that they should unfold. The birth of Christ in, in this fashion confirms for us that this is how it should be expected. This is the life from the beginning that was modeled to us, from the beginning of the greatest story ever told. We see it in Zechariah and Elizabeth. We've seen it in Mary, and now we see it in Christ himself. And next up, we see in a bunch of smelly, nomadic, low-educated, blue-collar shepherds. Let's continue reading, starting in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. You know, some believe shepherds were despised, but the evidence is weak for that. They were certainly insignificant. 
And I think that's what's important. It's, it fits well with what we have seen. The angelic announcement about the birth of Christ came first to these simple, blue-collar, uneducated young shepherds. There's another level of nuance that makes this special. Given the fact that they were close to the temple, it's likely that these were the shepherds who were caring for the flocks of sheep from which the temple offerings were selected. Isn't it cool to think of the possibility that these young men in charge of the sacrificial lambs were the first to see the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world? There's certainly an element of foreshadowing in the Christmas story of things that are to come. Let's, let's continue reading, starting in verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see these things that have happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You know, once the shepherds get calmed down, they're told some really powerful news by the angels. Good news of great joy for all of the people we hear. A Savior has been born. And then, as if to confirm the message, on cue comes this heavenly host of angels singing in the background, glory to God and on earth peace to those whom he is pleased. You know, I can't imagine what it must have been like. Not only did they see an angel, not only did they hear wonderful news, they saw heavenly hosts singing around them. You know, usually the glory of the Lord manifests itself with some sort of a bright light. So I would assume the, the field they were working in in the middle of the night was lit up with a light so brilliant they couldn't hardly stand it. I'm not sure where the angel would have been. A lot of times they're pictured floating. I think it's likely they were standing right there in front of them. Uh, relaying this message and then out of nowhere there would have been this heavenly host the ideas of an, an army of angels everywhere that the light touched proclaiming the glory of God you see the benefit was to God's people the benefit was joy and salvation and peace but the glory the praise the honor the credit the magnificence all of that went to God the angels proclaimed his glory. The people with Mary and Joseph wondered at it. Mary treasured it and pondered on it. And the shepherds repeated it. I want to zero back in on verse 20 and make note of this. Life forever changed for these shepherds. They had a story to tell. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. They had seen the Savior of Israel. They had seen the glory of God. And all they could do was talk about how wonderful God was and point others towards Him. Glorifying Him means putting Him on display. 
showing others, pointing others towards Him. And praising Him means using our words and our actions and our body and our mind to express our wonder for Him. So we see the the shepherds leave from this place telling others about God and expressing from their heart the magnificent things He has done for them. Do you see anything worthy of glory and praise in the Christmas story? You know, for so many of us, this time of year comes and goes, and either the reality of God in the flesh isn't on our radar, or if it is, the glory of it is missed because the focus is on ourself and the seasons and the things that we have to do. The angels proclaimed glory to God. The shepherds proclaimed glory to God. And you, likewise, should proclaim glory to God. Church, the almighty, all-powerful creator of the universe stepped into the flesh because he loved us so much. He was willing to go to great extents to offer salvation to his people, to preserve us and to save us from sin. He has walked in our shoes. He understands our experience. And he gave himself for us. He paid the price for our sins with his death. His way is humble and his way is backward and his way is different, but it's joyous and it's filled with peace and it's filled with hope. Jesus was the Son of God sent for your sins. And when you realize the reality of what we celebrate this time of year, how could you leave unchanged? How could you go back to tending your sheep unchanged? What if the shepherds had shrugged and noted how great the news was and then finished the night tending the sheep and never told anyone about it or looked into it any further or thought about it again. That's hard to imagine, yet so many in our world do this every year. I want to encourage you to not let this be you this holiday season. The greatest story ever told has the greatest message ever shared, a message of hope, and it matters to you. So here's my question. Why are you here this morning? Maybe you're here because you are visiting family, but inside you think that this is a bunch of hogwash. You know, Luke wrote this account as an historical document so people like you could believe. The shepherds heard something wonderful, and what did they do? They went to investigate. So if you're here with questions, I would encourage you to investigate. Don't be too quick to sweep these stories away. Do you disbelieve them for factual reasons or emotional reasons? Why couldn't there be an angel? Why couldn't there be a God? Why couldn't he have chosen to visit us in this way? Why couldn't he be gracious and merciful and loving? Why couldn't the Christmas story be true? I mean, I'm not trying to be trite or simplistic. It's a genuine question you have to answer, though. Why not? Because if it's logically possible then you owe it to yourself to research the evidence behind these accounts. And I am convinced, not because of wishful thinking, but because of evidence that these things happened, and this story is true. And that changes everything. Maybe you're here because you are visiting family, because of the holidays, and you believe in most of this, but the religion scene isn't really your thing. I would ask that you would pause and recognize the magnitude of what we celebrate today. Don't leave unaffected. 
The shepherds left changed because they recognized the glory of what was happening. I hope that you leave hungry for what is offered. Jesus offers salvation. It's available to everyone, but not everyone will get it. You know, I think a lot of times in church we come across as if we're trying to sell a product. But we're trying to show you an identity that changes everything. This is the best news ever. But you need to embrace embrace all of the story, not just the beginning. Maybe you're here because you believe and love Christ and there's not a place that you would rather be. This isn't meant to be kept to yourself. The shepherds glorified and praised God. That means that they told others about it. They went around shouting to the world, You aren't going to believe what happened. You aren't going to believe what I saw. You aren't going to believe what I know. We aren't selling a product. We are telling the greatest story ever told. So tell it. In verse 14 of chapter 1, Gabriel told Zechariah, You will have joy and gladness. Church, you will have joy and gladness. In verse 37, he told Mary, nothing will be impossible for God. Church, nothing is impossible for God. In verse 52, we read that he's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Church, God is exalting those with nothing. In verses 68 through 69, Zechariah says, God has visited and and raised up his powerful horn of salvation. Church, the power of God has has been concentrated in the horn of his salvation and in Jesus Christ who showed up today. So it's fitting that the angels would sing, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. In Christ, there is hope and joy and peace. For me for you, and for all of us. Don't miss it. Have you ever read a book that you just couldn't put down? Every once in a while we'll get one of those. I hope your appetite has been whetted just a little bit because the greatest story ever told has just begun and we would love to share the rest with you. It's a page turner. It's a life changer. So if you would like to study, if you would like to be baptized, or if you need to be prayed for, we invite you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.